gentlemen, you are both drunk on cosmic wine. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Mark Sylvester. And I'm Dr. Richard Schulman. This, this is, is Alt Psych. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for this topic on week four of The World Has Changed. It, and it's it not going back. And it's not going back. It kind of feels like we're living in a, a, a state of PTSD, the PTSD of COVID. Before we start the PTSD, for those of you who somehow have gotten here and don't know who we are, I'm Dr. Richard Shulman. That's what the intro's for, man. Yeah, well, but they may not know, so go Here's ahead. Here's the thing. I want to thank, uh, we currently have one subscriber, which I presume is my mother, and I want to thank her for, yeah. for joining each week. But she may need to know, you know, who she we knows are. who we are. She calls me at home. There you go. So, so why okay. do I feel like I'm in PTSD? I think all of us are in P PTSD, post-traumatic stress. We're living through an, an unprecedented worldwide trauma. And, and in a way, it's something that has connected all of us. Um, kind of a one of the ways the world has changed is we've all had this experience of being out of control in our lives. And Maybe everyone's terrified people, together. Everyone's, that's exactly right. You know, people don't know if they're going to get sick. They don't know if they're going to die. They don't know when this is going to end. They don't know if they're going to have a job. They don't know if they're going to be able to pay the light bill. And they don't trust the people that are running the show. That's a lot of out of control. And it's everyone. The whole society, the whole world actually feels well, out of control. It's almost palpable. It's, it's so present in each culture and each community and each country. It, it seems like it's, it's something you could reach out and, and touch it, or, or you're breathing in with this heavy anxiety and fear that, you know, even if you don't feel that necessarily as deeply personally as someone else, you feel it coming off of other people at you. Um, and that affects everybody. Well, we'll think about it. You have the very interesting picture behind you there. And if I'm having it, it's, it's actually very nice. I, I personally like it. But not everybody will. You're if right about that. That's why I hang it there. Like, if I don't like the picture, I don't have to look at it. You and I can still have a nice conversation. Now, let's imagine that you have some music on that I don't like. If it's not on too loud, um, we can still have a nice conversation. Now imagine the dog pooped in the corner of the room and, and nobody cleaned it up. You can smell and, that? <laughs> not through the internet. Um, and it's much harder to have a nice conversation because that stench is in the air. The fear that people are feeling are like that stench that hasn't been cleaned up. And everybody is in this toxic, energetic environment as if they're smelling some bad toxic smell and no one is, is escaping it. Now you can smell it a little less if you turn off your TV. Well, it, it's kind of like the co concept of collective, you know, unconscious. Um, there's gotta be a current of it, of that to it, but also like you said, the palpable presence. Uh, and maybe that's one of the ways the world has changed is you cannot smell the dog poop uh, in my office right now. Um, well, I thought you cleaned it up. Yes. In any event, it's everywhere. There's no place that you can escape. Now you can mitigate it. You don't watch TV, you stay off social media as much as possible. But I think if you go anywhere or people 
unless you're living alone, which has a completely different set of problems, anybody who goes out who deals with anything is going to come back with fear. Uh, my son is uh, running a, a quarantine unit for his facility up in Boston, and he is exhausted, even though the facility is running great. He's had no problems with the staff, no problems with the patients. He is absolutely exhausted because I think he's afraid he's going to get sick every day that he goes to work. Oh, the, the emotional drain is, is worse yes. than physical fatigue. It, sure. it's, 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 it's intense. And I, but I think, you know, he's a specific uh, situation. But anybody on the front lines of this, I can't imagine what it's like to work at Publix now. Well, you bring up, I have a bee in my bonnet about this because one of the things, I mean, we were all told to, to social distance, but what I see, you know, and, and maybe it's the psychiatrist in me, is I see psychological distance being what's actually the response to that fear and then the, you know, pushing the social distancing uh, information. And it's very peculiar to me because they do not need to be, you know, be interchanged in that way. They, they're, they don't equate. Why, why is that happening? Why do you think when we're told to social distance, that means don't be polite to the person at checkout. Don't make eye contact when you pass someone in an aisle. Is that just well, pure fear? Well, in a word, yes. I mean, we, okay. I as, a, as a society, we are, before any of this happened, we were touch phobic and touch starved. Now we're touch prohibited and sort of, uh, I don't know, touch anorexic or something like that. But it, it, but touch is kind of how we connect with people and depending on what culture you're in. Like if you're in a Middle Eastern culture, people are getting right in each other's faces and nobody thinks anything of it because that's what they do. The you're in a more Nordic culture, it, it, there's a little more distance. But with people being afraid you know, that they're going to infect each other and, and they're uh, taking the um, advice of experts, and of course the advice changes every 20 minutes, um, it's an attempt to gain control. So how are they gonna do it? Well, they're not gonna look at you, I don't know, maybe you give them the evil eye or something, but I think your observation is spot on. People are not just social distancing, they're psychologically distancing, because I think that there's an ordinary human element that when you connect with somebody, you touch them. Yeah. So you touch them physically, you touch them emotionally. And, and I think that with, the, with that push away from each other, it, that your observation is absolutely on target. Well, and one of the things I've noticed, you know, running a telehealth company for seven years now is that there's, in addition to what we're seeing in that regard, there's a paradox. There's this paradox of online communication because while we're terrified to make eye contact in public within, you know, 300 yards of another human uh, and certainly not uh, touch anything or anyone, um, people are growing together more in the digital world. They're reaching out to, to you know, old Facebook friends or, or family member that's really far away. Some of that may be additional time, but, you know, there's a rise in the digital altruism. You know, I told you I saw a great performance of Dave Matthews from, from his John, you know, playing, playing the <laughs> guitar. And they're doing this for free. And, and that's another way the world has really changed and communication and change. And our, and our approach to mental health and well-being has changed. So, well, so there's a paradox going on. Well, it's sort of what was already starting to happen on, on steroids. And, and I'm an old 
you know, the, we're going to send up a couple astronauts, I think, tomorrow. And by exactly. the time you guys, by the time everybody oh, they've, sees they've already, yes. They've already gone and they're, they're, everything is good. But we don't know that yet. But when, of the when I was a kid and I was enamored of, of space flight because I thought it was so cool, you it know, is. like, it is very cool. Well, as it turns out, I'm on the, the, I'm a Twitter friend or whatever you call it with guys on the space station. I sent messages to astronauts on the space station. I mean, I, and I that's so that, cool. That was happening before COVID, but it, now it's accelerated tremendously. It's accelerating because human beings are pack animals. I don't think yeah, we're, we're social beings. We're social beings. We're, we're, we're not supposed to be lone wolves. Very few of us function well in isolation. And now we're being told, well, you know, the only way to stay alive is, is to isolate. And the, and the whole idea that, okay, even if you're out in public, that you have to be six feet away from everybody and you have to go down the aisle in a certain direction, which brings out the rebel in me like immediately. You know, yeah. why should I go we ain't gonna rip that cord. You know, it's 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 pretty pretty amazing. So, you know, some people are gonna be able to do it, and I think it's a lot of it is fear-based. The whole point of, of sort of a collective post-traumatic stress is fear-based. But what are we afraid of? Well, we're afraid we're gonna die. Well, you get down to it as to what are the actual numbers that the experts are telling us? And of course, I know this is another bee in your bonnet, you know, the, the rise of experts again. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, we, 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 can, we can talk a little bit about that. You know, that, that people are looking for anything to um, dispel their fear. Well, well sorry to interrupt, but the other thing, we, we talked about last week a little bit about this, and it reminded me, how we, we were having to tell people to limit their access to media. Um, and the, the, the message is evolving. It's that this hypersonic rate. I mean, if we look at what we've been through in the last three months, literally every week, there's this whole new concept, the whole new idea. Very few people even knew what social distancing was. Um, now we're talking about lives versus livelihoods and, you know, sacrificing grandma at the business altar kind of thing. Uh, it's changing at such a hypersonic speed, and it's confusing. And and that and, and plays I think off what, here. What it's also doing is creating, uh, pushing people to extremes. Uh, like all or none thinking. Well, I'm going to do everything that the government tells me because that'll keep me safe, and I don't yeah. trust anything that's being told to me because that will keep me safe. Well, when and there's no there's no balance. We've lost all sense of balance. And um, kind of like the rest of the country, they, we live in extremes. And since the COVID-19, it's, it's accelerated that process, in my opinion. Well, and it seems, you know, on one hand, we're talking about social distancing and how things have changed off offline. And, and, then, and then the paradox of the online, there, you're seeing evidence of less individualism. You're seeing more interconnectedness and commonality in our, in our shared experience. So the paradox for me is if we're, if everyone in the world is, is dealing with this clear and present COVID, why, why have we not reunited one as, as all humankind the same way we would if an alien invaded, you know, Russia, China, all, you know, North Korea, 
we'd all be allies against, you know, them pesky uh, Martians coming. Um, why haven't we seen that? To, to well, I think degree. Well, how far, you know, how, how much, should, how transparent should I No, be? it was a rhetorical question. Moving on. Okay. Well, you know, I, I feel compelled to answer you sometimes. Um, <laughs> and there, lies like, and there are financial and political control elements in here. And, you know, and the narrative changes uh, pretty quickly. You know, we go from, we don't have enough ventilators to 88% of the people on ventilators die. We go from staying home to find out that 60% of the hospitalizations were people who stayed at home. And then we find out that like in Canada, there was a study came out a couple of days ago that 81% of the deaths in Canada were in nursing homes. And then you got people, governors like in New York saying you have to take the COVID-19 patients in the nursing homes. And it was a disaster. The truth of the matter is, that this was something that nobody really knew what to do with. And the problem that I had was they acted like they already knew. I well, mean, and we talked about this before the show that initially that there was a push to return, you know, to faith in the experts getting Anthony uh, Fauci up there. Um, you know, I, I always wonder what it would have been like in the 50s when your doctor told you to do something, you did it because I, I can't get anyone to do what I tell them to do. If I did, I'd be out of business. You well, know, everyone I would be healed. Well, Dr. Fauci, I call him Dr. Grouchy. Doesn't he look grouchy <laughs> to you? He always looks grouchy to me. Um, I think he would like it if everybody were back in the 50s, you know, and just listened to him. It would make his job easier. It would, and it would be Mine easier. Too. That's true, but um, you, don't, you don't kind of... Uh, <laughs> What? Are you sending a, a subliminal message there, Dr. Silver? I'm not sure if we, we pay, you know, paid Google for that. Oh, okay, okay. Shameless promotion. <laughs> yeah, I just, I think of him as Dr. Grouchy because not everybody wants to listen to him. But of course he changes his tune every, every half hour. So I'm not sure which version I'm supposed to Listen. Which is it? Are we seeing people return to the experts, or are they are they gravitating towards people with that truthiness and that and, and that feel right, you know, delivery or message? Um, what do people? You know, the only thing I can compare it to in my, in my recent memory was was nine eleven and the and the Iraq War and how, as in a state of fear, we were quick to to act. Um, and put, you know, kind of usurp our trust and our faith in, in, into the government. Is this a similar type of thing? Why aren't we seeing everybody kind of trust more in the experts or everybody say, you know what, the experts have failed us. I'm going to think independently and critically myself. Well, because they have failed us. If you look at the war in, in Iraq, we didn't find any weapons of mass destruction, like they said. They didn't exist. They're, we're more educated now. By the way, I'm, I don't think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. You, that kind of narrative now is being questioned where it wasn't questioned in the past. I, I was a young boy when, when the president was murdered. If you said this was a conspiracy, you were either Which a traitor. Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a little older than I look. Um, I, I think his name was Kennedy. Uh, well, Lincoln's secretary was Kennedy. Kennedy's secretary was Lincoln. There's a lot of oddness here. If you said that, 
well, you were a tinfoil hat guy or a commie trader. Now, nobody really believes it was just some lone nut, you know, that killed the president. But we're like almost 60 years. It was John Wilkes from, Booth, the end. We know it. You know, always have three names. Have you noticed that? Yep. John Wilkes Booth, Lee Harvey Oswald, Mark David Chapman. I think it's a three-name thing. A anyway, um, why don't we? Well, if you go back to 9-11 for a minute, and 9-11 has great personal significance to me because my cousin was murdered there. Um, the acts of individual heroism were off the scale. And, mm -hmm. and if you look at phone messages from people who were in the buildings and knew they were going to die, it's amazing. They were all, I love you. It was all about love. Tremendous acts of heroism during 9-11. Uh, the, the firemen, the cops, the, the, the firemen that went up the stairs when they thought the building might blow up. You know, it's pretty, pretty impressive. We would like to do this, but we don't know what that looks like now. Yeah. We're fighting a bug, you know, that, that is so small it gets through any mask. All right. How do you fight that? You put on a mask. That it, okay, that's your statement. That's how you stay inside. Well, you know, the, the thing that's so crazy now is how the con mental health consequences of the COVID-19. I know personally one person who died of COVID-19. Now I've got two deaths from suicide, in the past two months, two deaths from suicide, one very serious suicide attempt, a person who overdosed and died, and I don't get out that much. I, in the last 10 years, I didn't have this many people die on my watch. And they're not all my patients, but people I know. And this is, I think, a direct consequence to COVID-19, the post-traumatic stress. And it, this is a, a real, this is gonna be the next pandemic, if you ask me. It's gonna be everywhere, because we have all lived in that fear. We've all seen the images of people dying. We've been pounded with, you can't escape this. I guess you would also, you can escape it by washing your hands and staying inside it, wearing a mask. We're not going to escape it. Well, I think what, what you're saying is you're not going to escape the fear. I mean, if, comparing to 9-11, I, I mean, it's, it's, been all, it's been 20 years. I mean, I guess that means we're getting older. But in 20 years, there is still, like we were talking about, the, the torsion field, this palpable energy. There's this palpable fear, uh, at least up until COVID-19. Of, of terrorism. It was like you said, the commie, you know, we were talking about during the Cold War, the Reds or the commies, or it, it was, it, fear hangs on to the culture for a long time. So the world has clearly changed for the vast foreseeable future and that, in that fear. And, you know, whether it's the paradox of online communication or, or offline communication and interpersonal, um, e even touching or, or close interaction, getting in each other's uh, energy fields, um, there, one thing that's definitely changed is this online interchange because it's not brand new. This isn't something that was invented overnight. I mean, everyone remembers when Skype first came out, it was a huge deal. It was a fad, but then it went away. It didn't really catch on. And then iPhones came out with the FaceTime and FaceTime was in everyone's pocket. How come people didn't use it? They still preferred to be on their phones. We're not going back to that. There's a sharp no. rise in telemedicine and telebusiness, telecommunications, video conferencing. We've got the infrastructure. Um, 
Zoom is now, again, like social distancing, a word that everybody's familiar with. You know, we've used Zoom for seven years. Now I got all, I get stuck in my internet traffic commute on the way to work because everyone's using the damn Zoom. But that is one place we're not going back. We're not going back. You know, the thinking of, oh, is this a meeting that could be done online? It's now, is this a meeting that can be done in person? And, and I think the, the oneness of things, I was talking to my son last night, he's a filmmaker, he's uh, 23 years old. And I said, well, isn't, isn't Sarasota getting a little small for you? Maybe you should go to a bigger city, more opportunities. He looked at me like I had three heads and said, dad, I can talk to a, a filmmaker in China right this minute. I don't have to go to Atlanta or, or Los Angeles or some bigger city. And it, sort of reminded me that the world had changed. With COVID-19, because it's, it's, an, it's a ubiquitous experience, everyone in the world has been touched by it, some more than others, no doubt, and the responses have been different in different places depending on, you know, may, who knows, maybe there are different strains of this thing. It was not as bad in Japan, for example, as it, it was in Italy, I don't know, different populations. I don't know about that stuff, but everybody has experienced it. However you reacted to it, everyone experienced it. I've never seen anything like it. And it goes back to something you said earlier, Mark, that what would happen if, if the Martians invaded? This is it. The Martians invaded, I guess. But why aren't uh, we all banding together like they did in uh, Independence Day and kick the Martians' ass? We're fighting amongst ourselves. We're not cooperating with, uh, with foreign governments and health systems. We're, we're not trusting the World Health Organization or even the, the thought leaders or the expertise for that matter uh, in, in, in virology. People that forget more about this than even I will know. And I'm vastly over more edu overeducated than, than Joe and Schmo. Why, why, why? The inquiring okay. public wants well, to know I mean, I'm, I'm, Look, I'm the old radical. I'm an old hippie. Uh, if I if I could, I would I would still you know grow my hair down to my ass. You can. Okay, you haven't passed that law yet. It'll take uh, take a while. I think that that if you look at the financial incentives that people have to to have a certain agenda, and incentives for power and control, rather than just the incentive for people to be healthy you kind of get a glimmer of why we're not all pulling together. You know, this chloroquine stuff came out early on and a French doctor said, if you use this with, I think, some antibiotic and zinc, it, it helped everybody. And then there was a doctor in Brooklyn who said the same thing. And then the governor of New York and Michigan said, well, if you're a medical doctor and you use chloroquine, we're gonna take away your license. And then we have this other drug, you probably know the name, Remsevir or something. And the chloroquine has been used for 70 years. It's cost 60 cents a pill. The remsevir is $1,000 a hit. And this shows promise. Turns out it didn't. There's so much money involved in this and so much kind of stickiness. The, the results of the Moderna vaccine are promising. And then three days later, it's not so promising. But the Mo Moderna executives have done a little neat stock sale that made them $30 million. People stop trusting when that happens. Or some people like me, I guess, 
stop trusting because I can see that there's an agenda and the agenda isn't that you and I are safe. Well, I prefer the digital hydroxychloroquine. I was reading about uh, virtual reality programs for mental health. We talked about this before with, with the vets and PTSD and how beneficial it's been. And I, this is something I was reading about and I was surprised. Uh, I was a little bit even behind the times because that technology, you know, like we were, we were talking about um, uh, Skype and FaceTime and now how finally Zoom is at a time and a place to really gain hold in the whole telehealth or teleconferencing ethos. Kind of reminds me of those energy drinks, you know, they didn't make it uh, when Jolt Cola first came out. Now it's something like 50 or 75% of the, some ridiculous percentage of the, my one, maybe my mom can fact check me on that, but it's high. Energy drinks are a huge share of the market. So maybe we're going to see virtual reality help people augment their own digital reality. I mean, I, I, I love my, the X-Files where they find the guy in the camper, you know, and he's merged with the computer. It'll be some time before that happens. But there's, what are your thoughts on the benefit of exploring uh, alternatives through through your your head your headgear your headset your eye goggles whatever the preferred nomenclature is for VR. Well, you look if you're treating post traumatic stress, there's a lot of new studies that say that really helps. Personally, I think reality is more interesting than virtual reality, um, and I know kids that only really know virtual reality. How about you know? the therapeutic potential, though? Not hey you know, tune in, drop out, don't ever join the non-digital world. But is there therapeutic value at like a hypnosis? If I'm, if I'm sitting in a, a beautiful landscape in, in, in Oregon or, 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 a, or a Buddhist monastery, you know, my brain every, doesn't know the difference. It's real dumb. Every, every tool has, um, has a use. And it's just imagine if all, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think that there's tremendous potential for using virtual reality for treatment because we can't take everyone out into the mountains of Oregon and, you know, have them do have a Zen moment there. Yeah. Because they're all on house arrest. <laughs> Very true. I think you're getting more radical Mark. I, I mean, you've been hanging around with me too long, I think. And we're out of time for today. <laughs> on that happy note. No, I'm thinking. Perfect segue to what we're going to talk about. I'm next thinking week. next week. I'm really excited to be exploring the topic of non-ordinary therapies for non-ordinary times because the world has indeed changed, and I think our approach to mental health and treatment clearly has changed. So we're going to talk a lot more specifically about the nuts and bolts and what that looks like and feels like and how that's going to uh, work from from here well, forward. I, I would like and to why. add one thing. Mark, you had already been ahead of the ahead of the curve in your way, and I have a few, you know, non-ordinary things to add. So, hope everybody will tune in next week, and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Mark. Bye. Everybody, be well out there. Be well, stay safe, and don't watch your TV. <laughs> <laughs>